You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. James P. Blaylock is one of the pioneers of the steampunk genre. His work, including The Digging Leviathan, Homunculus, and Lord Kelvin's Machine, The Adventures of London St. Ives, The Ebb Tide, and The Affair of the Chalk Lifts, are among these works. He's written fantasies, which include The Elfin Ship, The Disappearing Dwarf, and The Stone Giant. He's written contemporary adult ghost stories and fantasies, including Night Relics, Winter Tides, The Rainy Season, The Last Coin, The Paper Grail, and All the Bells on Earth. His new steampunk adventure from Subterranean Press is Azuglodon. Thank you for joining me, James. I'm happy to join you. James, I'd like you to take us back to the 1980s when you decided it would be a good idea to roll back the clock even farther on your fantasy and fantastic fiction and uh, explain to us how you first came up with these wild characters in the Narbondo series. Well, uh, actually, I, I think the first of those, the first couple of those were short stories published by Asimov's uh, magazine in the late 70s, basically. Uh, in fact, the first steampunk story, although it didn't star my villain Narbondo, uh, was published by Unearth Magazine in 1978. Um, and then there were some followed. I, they came about because I was a, a great fan at the time of Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm-hmm. I was reading as much Stevenson as I could get my hands on. And uh, I particularly liked um, The New Arabian Nights and Jekyll and Hyde and the sort of detective mystery stuff that Stevenson wrote. And basically, I decided I, I wanted to write pieces that I might have written if I was 30 years old in 1875. What an interesting idea. You know, I detected a lot of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson in Zuglodon. It, it had a very Treasure <clears throat> Island feel to me. Yes. Yeah. I think, um, although it's God help me, 35 years or 40 years since I was writing those early <laughs> stories. Um, Stevenson's still, you know, one of my one of my favorites. Also, I think Treasure Island and uh, Kidnapped and a couple of other Stevenson novels are among <clears throat> some of the best young adult fiction ever written, you know. Talk about creating the kind of narrative voice necessary to carry off this fiction because it's not exactly a contemporary voice but you want it to appeal to contemporary readers so you're straddling a fine line there how long did it take you to develop this did it just just pour off the tip of your pen back there in the 70s you know it did just pour off the tip of my pen although i think that what was pouring off the tip of my pen was derivative perhaps uh, from pg woodhouse Mm-hmm. Robert Louis Stevenson and Dickens. I was crazy for Dickens at the time. So it was kind of a, a mashup of, of my favorite writers at the time. It was a little bit wild, and I'm going to have to say perhaps not entirely consistent. Um, nowadays, I think I've got a more consistent tone. and a, Still, a, there's a fine line between what actually sounds Victorian and what what's, is kind of faux Victorian, I suppose. Well, I think what uh, what you do quite successfully is to write something that feels totally Victorian to us 
without actually perhaps being Victorian, and that's the that's the difficult task. I I agree that it's a difficult task. Although I think I've gotten I've gotten used to it. I read a lot of uh, a writer named Patrick O'Brien. I don't know if you mm-hmm. are familiar with Patrick O'Brien, uh, whose books take place from the late uh, 18th century to the through into the early 19th century, and he does sort of the same thing. You. you 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 can't absolutely say that that he that the writing is consistent with the language of that era, but it certainly sounds like it when you're reading it. You have no problem buying into the fact that it, the Napoleonic Wars are going on, and he's got lots of uh, homely phrases down, but doesn't lay them on so thickly that it begins to sound um, I don't know what show offy. You know. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I think I love so much about your work is the way you manage to combine uh, science speculation, retrospeculation, uh, with contemporary speculation, and with elements of the supernatural and kind of uh, your spiritual and moral themes. I think that's a very difficult synthesis to make, and it seems like that's something that 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 strike you right when you were started uh, writing these stories? You know, I'll have to say it didn't strike me <clears throat> from the very beginning. The The first couple, three, four stories, I just wanted to have fun with. So there's a wild explosions and uh, it uh, heaps and heaps of goofy stuff that took precedence maybe over anything more serious, if that's the term that I, I want to use. I think as I got older, though... What mattered to me perhaps changed just a little bit. Not that I got dismal or anything like that, but... <laughs> and now the characters the characters in my more recent steampunk stuff are probably cast a little bit more of a shadow than the early characters did. And as a consequence, it, there seems to be more going on in their lives than just, you know, exploding heads and cigars and things like that. You know, one of the things I love about the the uh, Langsford St. Ives novels is, you know, the way you manage to use the plotting and the kind of the characters. And I think that one of the things that it struck me when I was thinking of looking back and, and rereading some of your stuff is that the kind of outsized villains that we find in these things and the outsized heroes, this is really, I think, the origins of uh, the entire comic genre and superhero genre, it seems to me. Yeah, I, I believe that's I believe that's so uh, to to some extent. I know. <clears throat> well, I don't know. Maybe maybe good characters in fiction are always outsized a little bit. Um, most of us wouldn't be of particular interest as characters in a novel. One of the nice things about writing steampunk, one of the fun things though, is that um, I can bring a level of humor to it that allows for exaggerated characters and. One of my favorite of my characters is a guy named Tubby, you know. Mm-hmm. And back in, <clears throat> I don't know if you read English pieces from the earlier early part of the 20th century, there's almost always a Tubby who shows up. His last name is Frobisher. If there's not a Tubby in a story, there's a Frobisher, especially in, you know, in pulp stories. I can goof around with goofy things, I guess, uh, easier there than if I'm, if I'm writing a contemporary piece. It's so interesting to me, too, because that was something I was thinking as I was looking at uh, one of the subterranean novellas, was I think this is really partakes of Jeeves and Wooster. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting mix to put in with, with the, kind of the, the fan elements of the fantastic. So talk about uh, looking at something that's like a staple of, a, of you know, 
literary humor and wit and thinking, well, wouldn't that be fun to mix in some elements of the fantastic? That's very much on my mind when I was writing. I suppose that if I'd had the talent to write stories that were, were as purely funny as Woodhouse had, I might have been well satisfied with that. But I did not have that kind of talent. It couldn't be that funny. And consequently, I, I sort of had to put some some of my own spin on it just to, to try to make it work. And it, also, it seems that, that over the years, the the characters, my main character, Langdon St. Ives, and his, and his uh, factotum, so to speak, are less... He, the Hasbro, the factotum, is much less manservant now and much more friend, you mm-hmm. know? which I try to to make plausible in the stories. So talk about developing this world because you have a very complicated world full of, you know, science that's wild and entertaining but also consistent within itself. How much of this stuff that you kind of made up off the cuff have you had to go back and kind of rigorously look okay I did this kind of science here so I can't use that again or if this happens this has to happen again is there now a a Bible of the Langdon St. Ives universe (laughs) there is not yet but uh, I should probably put one together just so that I can keep consistent one of the nice things about 19th century science was that it was largely imaginary I, I, I love that people there were parts of the world that had been unex- that hadn't been explored yet, and there might or might not be a city of gold, and you know if there might or might not be a valley full of dinosaurs. That it was, I think, a more fertile playground for me to mess around in than more contemporary science, since I knew nothing about contemporary science, and certainly was never going to learn anything about contemporary science. Yeah, just not my style. When it comes to writing my more contemporary Orange County books. I've lived in Orange County and hiked in the backcountry and have paid enough attention to the natural world so that I can, I think, write plausibly about the flora and fauna and that kind of stuff, which is a great deal of fun. But certainly I could never, I could never write contemporary science fiction and make anybody believe it at all. You know, I can put characters into stories who have completely goofy notions about science in order to provide a, a certain sense of humor, perhaps. And in fact, I think in some of my uh, more contemporary work, <clears throat> there's science fiction or fantasy almost by virtue of the fact that the characters, that some of the characters in the story are science fiction and fantasy fans, I suppose I would say. People with um, uh, who have these interests in strange scientific things that they most often get wrong. No, I'm not suggesting that science fiction fans most often get things wrong, but well, this crops up in Zooglodon. It's all it's uh, it's. I've got to tell you, when you start a a book with the the forty in quote, that was just yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope uh, I hope there are enough people out there who who like Charles Ford as much as I do. <laughs> there are gangs of people who love Charles Ford out there. Good, good. I've got uh, some ideas for doing Fordian sorts of things in the future, I think. Oh, good. Yeah. I, we, there's a whole Fordian news group that's going uh-huh. to absolutely go ape over this book, or oh. I guess Bigfoot is maybe more appropriate. Well, uh, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, go Bigfoot. That's pretty good. Um, good. Charles Fort. I've read Charles Fort for quite a few years, actually, um, and reread him. I mean, it's, there's, you pretty much have to reread Ford after you've read through him once, you know. Now, uh, could you talk about uh, a little bit about your Orange County books? 
there are there are really beautifully crafted evocations of suburbia and what I really love about these books is that we get the most realistic characters in American fiction I think I've ever read um, in terms of these people live ordinary lives they tend to have ordinary jobs or at least would have ordinary jobs if they weren't being doing something completely goofy and there's a, a great uh, understated but really funny sense of humor in these books you really capture I think uh, about the way 60% of Americans actually live in books that are filled with the fantastic and that's a really interesting uh, paradox well, thank you for saying so. I'm not quite sure how I ended up writing those sorts of books. Um, I will say that um, maybe it was the heavy doses of 19th century novels that I read for so many years when I was a university student and afterwards. Um, Dickens and most of the great 19th century writers wrote about ordinary people living ordinary lives, you know, mm -hmm. exaggerating things as is necessary to provide humor or drama or whatever it might happen to be. And um, I, I never developed the notion that I would be better off with, with characters who were, I don't know what, had, had big personal problems or uh, were... Uh, hyper-heroic or whatever it might happen to be. I much preferred writing about people I understood, I suppose, which tend to be my neighbors and my relatives and and uh, my family. Also, I, I've always been a Phil Dick fan, and I particularly like... That's something I particularly like about about Phil's work. I think it's not... That's something that not many people notice about his work. They talk about the uh, uh, unusual realities, but what I love about his work is the is that it's about totally average people who are working at the record store the electronic shop or something like that and god knows what comes in through the door yeah and then they deal with the problem um as an an authentic person under those circumstances would deal with that problem i love that about phil in fact i'm more fond of that when i read his work than i am of some of the themes that people make you know kind of a big deal about well, you spent a, a bit of time hanging out with him, didn't you? Back in the in the 70s, he died in 82, and I think I met him in around 1975, so I knew him for about seven years. He lived locally. Talk about those times, the, the meetings in the, in the uh, was it the smoke shop? That Tim Powers actually worked at the smoke shop during those years, and um, I don't know, on, on Thursday nights, people would meet at Tim Powers' apartment, basically, usually a bunch of guys in smoke cigars. I was not a cigar smoker, but virtually everybody else was. And drink beer and talk and uh, eat donuts. And Phil used to come around uh, every Thursday night. And in fact, the night he died was a Thursday night, and there was some suspicion that something was wrong because he hadn't shown up. Um, that was it's the night he had a stroke. I shouldn't say it's the night he died. He died several several days later. But um, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to, to hang around with Phil on a sort of friendly basis, go out to eat drink a beer, that sort of thing. I think one of the things, that kind of uh, sensibility, that low-key sensibility is what really makes your fiction so powerful because you give us authentic emotions. And I'd like you to talk about um, the 
the work in, you know, for example, the rainy season and, and some of the, the ghost stories, um, this is a, a trilogy of novels that you wrote kind of all set. Not, not a trilogy in the sense of story sequence, but there's a, a definite thematic feel. Yeah, the sensibilities are the same in each of them. There's a different, um, <laughs> uh, what do I want to say, weather to them, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the rainy season, it rains all the time. And in fact, uh, I've had readers ask me, was I undergoing some sort of personal problem at the time because the book is so dark? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I didn't really see it as dark. My main character was undergoing some problems, you mm-hmm. know, and the book perhaps reflected his his state of mind, but it, I'm don't recall it having uh, represented my state of mind necessarily at the time, you know. But yeah, those are moderately serious books with, you know, uh, very similar sensibilities. Well, when you undertook to write those, did you know you were going to write three novels that would have this kind of... Uh, a thematic relationship and did you and just talk about you know these feelings raising ghosts up out of suburbia out of the Cali- the, the most al- average of California sub- suburban settings that's a challenge well yeah I suppose it is um, and I don't want to sound like a nut this is where I'm, I'm about to go off the rails but in this old neighborhood where I live uh, ghost stories are rampant and um I won't hesitate to say that um, some of them I'm pretty doggone certain are true because I was at witness certain things and neighbors of mine witnessed certain things. So I was sort of geared toward uh, ghosts, you might say. Um, well, that's so interesting because I, as I drove up here, I just looked at all these beautiful old houses and, and you have a, a stove in your kitchen that's 35 years old. <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, it was old when we bought it 35 mm. years ago, which was, uh, as I said, for $15. Um, we spiffed it up just a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I sort of love this, the, I hate to use the word sensibility again, but I, I love the atmosphere of this, of this old neighborhood, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the way that I've come to see Orange County is reflect, is a, is a combination of, of, of its past, um, sort of combined with its presence, Mm-hmm. Uh, present. Um, one of my books, Winter Tides, is set in Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. You know, vies with Santa Cruz to be surf city. And they won. Oh, they, uh, Huntington Beach won. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody cares. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when I grew up, the downtown in Huntington Beach was very decayed. Mm. Um, had some great clubs. Uh, the old Golden Bear was there. Jimi Hendrix played it. Uh, I remember Golden the Golden Bear. Bear. Is a wonderful place. Um, lots of Hell's Angels. Lots of drugs. Um, absolutely wonderful place for a 15-year-old to be mm. hanging out on the streets, you know, all summer long. When it got its facelift, and all of a sudden, the some of the old bars and junk stores disappeared uh, and you know Heidi's frozen yogurt came in and uh, Wahoo fish tacos and things like that it, it's, it underwent a transformation became a distinctly different place mm-hmm. um, so when I wrote Winter Tides I, I it was partly a pin to the past mm-hmm. to the Huntington Beach that I loved growing up in the, in the late 50s and in the 60s um, it, partly the, the present you know they might go into Starbucks and get a K-47 
cappuccino or something like that. But um, but they, that was that was fun. I think I was um, in most of those books that you mentioned. I was as interested in the place, I suppose, as I was in any of the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your books. Those books had a very definite sense of place of, and. Uh, when I read them, I wasn't living in Orange County, but I had spent many years living in Orange County, and so it was kind of like just returning home again and mm-hmm. immersing myself in this place. And in a very, I guess, ultra hyper realistic manner. And that's what's so interesting to me is that you have all these elements of the fantastic, and I think those seem to actually accentuate what makes the book seem realistic or true to the feel of the place. Well, maybe so. I'd like to think so. I know that the, um, I'm not sure this is, is quite the opposite of what you said uh, also, but um, it seems to me that if, if the place can become hyper-realistic, then sometimes the f- I, I hope that the, the audience will buy into the fantastic stuff also. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, much more. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Although, on the other hand, the, what I like to think of as a realistic um, conception of the place perception of the place didn't have any motive I think beyond my love of the place mm-hmm. yeah I, Nabokov one time said that uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde it, it really isn't particularly credible it's not plausible on the face of it the guy drinks an elixir and turns into you know his alter ego and Nabokov said it, it worked because it was a trick of style and I thought ooh I like that I like that phrase you know it's really very nice and I think I think that that's a what do I want to say? A side effect mm-hmm. of, of what Stevenson did when he when he wrote the piece. That's how he made it plausible, I think, with that trick of style. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he loved what he was doing, and it, it was a Stevensonian style. It isn't something he invented for the purpose of writing that particular book and discarded later on, you know. And um, I'd like to think the same thing is true of my books, that I all the bells on earth for example, is set in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. and it was this neighborhood as carefully as I could capture it. That book just really knocked me out. I loved that book. Oh, thank you. It, thank was, you. it had such a, a, again, a strong suburban sense. And of those kind of, you know, one of the things that's nice about your books is that there are victories, but they're kind of small victories. Mm-hmm. And I think that that makes a big difference to us as readers because most of us do not have big victories. No, no, most of us do not actually, <laughs> and we're happy with the small ones. I think when we when we have those, I was happy at the time. I was, I'm a John Ruskin fan in many ways, and um, I read and reread a, a bit of his in which he said that the you know every day we have to go out and do battle with the dragon, and I thought, wow, that's interesting that that's what we're doing day to day. And I thought, you know, here's the I, I thought I'd, I'd write a book in which the dragon was hanging out on the streets of my own neighborhood, you know, and my character was going to have to uh, go to war, you know, to accomplish whatever it was he was going to accomplish. And then I tried to conceive of uh, all of the the sort of major characters have are battling some sort of dragon or demon or whatever it might happen to be. That was a fun book to write. Talk about your latest book, Zuglidon. This seems to me uh, to be... Closest uh, of a follow-up to a book called *The Magic Spectacles*. Yes, in a way, and I love that book. And and 
I, I love that. That was set in the center, the little circle of orange. Is that, am I not? Yes, 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 yes. I, I love that setting. <laughs> in fact, the the uh, edition that was put out by, by Morrigan Press in England, um, the illustrations were drawn by a friend of mine whose pen name is Ferret. Mm-hmm. Um, his actual name is Tim McNamara. But um, he actually came and stayed here and did the illustrations pretty much while he was here. It took a lot of photos and that sort of thing. So the the two kids in the Magic Spectacles are actually my sons, John and Danny, when they were little kids. And John, as you just saw, is, he's 32 now, so it's been a few years back. <laughs> um, but the picture that's taken out the window is, in fact, the window that was his bedroom at the time. And uh, the circle is exactly as it looked uh, at the time. It was their bicycles. They're actually wearing the same clothes that they were wearing when when uh, Ferret snapped a, a photo of him. So that was a real, that, that book was really close to home. And they're named Johnny and Danny, you know, they're my sons. That book was, I, <clears throat> I revised it several years later. It, it did, um, it sold in England, it sold in Japan, but it didn't sell domestically. It was a little too weird and um, it broke, I think, too many rules. I'm not sure that that was a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, the domestic publishers turned it down because it was a little bit too strange and a little elevated for a child for a, a children's book. You mm-hmm. know? And also, they complained that the that the real problem of the story belonged to to the the crazy adult character, Mister Deaner, who mm-hmm. was building a rope ladder to get to the moon because he was regretted the falling apart of his marriage which i have to admit is not a theme for a children's story <laughs> and the fact that the two kids um help him solve his problems so they can all get back home uh was irrelevant to domestic publishers japanese publishers it was fine <laughs> you know there was not a problem but but here it was uh it was it was problematic so i rewrote it <clears throat> um several years later 10 years later 15, I'm, I can't even remember when, 10 years later, let's say, and sold the revised uh, Magic Spectacles, which I think is actually a little bit better book. Um, it was it was published uh, serially by Crank Magazine. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. seen Crank. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember Crank. They yeah. used to buy them. Oh, I used to buy the issues over at Aladdin Books. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh-huh. Recently, Golanks purchase rights, the e-rights to my books to publish in England, and The Magic Spectacles was one of those books. And so, ideally, they're going to use those old ferret illustrations. Oh, really? Oh, that's um, great. But with the revised uh, text. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, We'll see. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a good thing for writers to revise books or not, you know. Sometimes I think they can just be spoiled, but uh, it's a crapshoot with this one. It's a, it's a weirder book than it was uh, originally. Oh, well, I'll and have to take a look at the revised version. Yeah, I read the Morgan version. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, it's pretty... It was strange then, but it's it's weirder now. You you asked though how that that uh, you mentioned that Zuglodon seemed to have a bare family resemblance to that. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. Um I like the idea in that book that there would be a character who was sleeping and that the content of his sleeping mind would would fabricate the reality that the other characters would, you know, involve themselves in. And um, I thought it was pretty doggone complex for a children's book, for, you know, a book with characters that were six and eight years old or whatever those 
my sons were, you know, at the time when I was writing that book. So I thought maybe I could make it fly um, by completely, I, I wrote a, an entirely new novel, but there's that connection between the two. Mm-hmm. But I thought maybe I could make it fly a little bit if the, if, if my, if, if the, the characters were just a little bit older, which um, editors patiently explained to me had everything to do with content of the book. Uh, it was explained to me that if my I had a, a 12-year-old hero that I could expect middle school kids to be reading my books. But if my heroes were six years old and eight years old, then they were too young for middle school kids to have any interest in, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure all of that's true. But I thought I could do more with the more complex aspects of the uh, magic spectacles with a different cast of characters, I suppose, and a different spin on the, the world they were in. I think it owes a family resemblance also to the digging Leviathan. Well, yeah, that's what I I was going to say. One of the things I think that's really remarkable about that book is that you use, uh, you get a, a real evocation of all the joys of reading steampunk in a present-day setting with present-day characters. And I think that's a... That's even tougher to pull off than steampunk. Well, you, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. I I am I've thought the same thing from time to time. I realized um, the Digging Leviathan was my f- third novel, and Homunculus, my first steampunk novel, was my fourth novel. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't occur to to me t- until later that when I wrote Digging Leviathan, I was simply writing steampunk that took place in the late 1950s. You mm-hmm. know, it just at the time, though, nobody referred to it as steampunk. Sure, sure. You know, it wasn't. It hadn't become any variety of subgenre or anything like that yet. But, um, but yeah, I think there's a steampunk sensibility to the Digging Leviathan and to Zuglodon both. And also, I just can't get rid of Doctor Narbondo and his submarine, which I happily cribbed from Jules Verne. Yeah, Jules Verne casts a. Uh, uh... He gets a, gets name checked in a couple of your books. Yes, he does. He does. He was a immense influence on me when I was growing up as a as a young reader. You know, I remember buying these little classic paperback versions at the store in Covina uh-huh. and lining up all my Jules Verne books. Oh, oh yeah, that's yeah. yeah. I uh, went off to the. Uh, my mother took me to the library during a. I think I was in middle school. I was probably 11 years old at the time, so maybe sixth grade, um, whatever, whatever that is. But she'd take me to the library every Tuesday afternoon to the Stanton Free Library, take my sister to, and we'd pick out whatever books we wanted and haul them home. And I read all of the Verne that they had and all of the H.G. Wells and all of the Edgar Rice Burroughs and understood that to be science fiction. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was actually in college, I think I was 19 years old, that I saw the English department listed a class called, you know, science fiction literature. And I thought, hot dog, I'll, I'll read all that old Wells and Verne again. And I signed up for it. And I ended up reading Dune and Out of the Silent Planet. <laughs> you know, it was very different. I thought, holy smoke. I, I had no idea this stuff existed, you know, and loved it. Absolutely. Now, uh, let actually, I'm going to ask you to just read... Okay. Um, the opening of Zuglodon, including uh, the the quote, because okay. it's so <laughs> just to hear the quote is worth it. All right. This uh, the quote is from Charles Fort's uh, great book Low, which is just L O exclamation point. 
we shall pick up an existence by its frogs. If there is an underlying oneness of all things, it does not matter where we begin, whether with stars or laws of supply and demand or frogs or Napoleon Bonaparte. One measures a circle beginning anywhere. I love that bit. This is chapter one of Zuglodon, the day that three things happened. How it all started was like this. Brendan Perry and I were taking Hasbro for a walk one Friday morning last spring because Brendan claimed he saw a mermaid on the rocks at Lighthouse Beach. He had said things like this before, telling us one time how he had seen a gigantic octopus tentacle come up out of the kelp, and then another time a pterodactyl eating fish on the rocks. The pterodactyl had turned out to be a big pelican, which was better than the octopus, which turned out to be a figment. Brendan was hanging onto the leash, and Hasbro was pulling him along toward Mrs. Hoover's house. Hasbro is part bulldog, you see, and he's very strong, and there's no holding him back if he's anxious to be walking. He's kind of fat, too, although Uncle Hedge says he's actually just portly, which is a pleasant way of saying fat, and there's no reason not to be polite around dogs as well as around people. I could see Mrs. Hoover working in her front garden in among the roses. She's our neighbor three doors down, and a very nice neighbor, too, as you'll see. There was a woman talking to her, a tall, thin woman who looked sort of picklish and who was writing in a notebook. We didn't know it then, but the woman was Ms. Henrietta Peckworthy, who was a member of a very troublesome do-gooder society. Ms. Peckworthy was about to become our nemesis, our soon-to-be sworn enemy. What happened was that Hasbro spotted Mrs. Hoover's Persian cat, whose name is Pete and whose face is entirely flat. Hasbro followed Pete along the edge of the bushes toward the Hoover backyard, pulling Brendan with him. Pete started running, and when Hasbro tried to chase him, he yanked Brandon over onto his face in the wet grass and got away into the fog, which is very thick now. Perry ran after Hasbro, and I bent over to help Brendan up. It was just then, when both of us were hidden by fog and bushes, that I overheard Ms. Peckworthy talking. No rules at all is what they tell me, she said to Mrs. Hoover. A steady diet of donuts and ice cream, up all hours and roaming the bluffs and beaches. I understand that the small boy tumbled down the side of the cliff and broke his arm. That would be Brendan, Mrs. Hoover said. Boys will be boys. I dare say they will, if they're allowed to be. And that poor little girl with no mother to look after her, a perfect little tomboy. Her aunt is very worried about her. Tolliver Hedgepeth might mean well enough, but he's an eccentric of the first water, and he's no kind of parent for three impressionable children. Now, this just establishes such a great tone. And what I like about this book is it's written for young adults. You could easily give this to your kids, but also it appeals totally to adults, and that's a very difficult trick to pull off. There are subcurrents of, you know, these deep emotions and sympathies. There's some really interesting speculative stuff with regards to the dreamer and the dreams, tributes and, and you know, allusions to all sorts of great literature, but also a rockin' adventure. So talk about combining these elements and having these two different layers of appeal. You know, the, I guess the two different layers, layers of appeal was, was a stroke of good fortune, mm. I suppose. When it came into my head that I might try my hand at writing a, another young adult book, not having written anything for kids since The Magic Spectacles, which had been many, many years before, I had in my mind that I wanted to write old-fashioned adventures, perhaps a desert island adventure, a haunted house adventure, whatever it might happen to be the sort of books that I would myself have liked to read when I was growing up. I'm not sure that that was um, an intelligent decision to make commercially because I've got old-fashioned tastes and that's, you know, we'll see how that, how that works out. When I, I sat down 
to write, knowing that I was going to do a hollow earth novel of some variety to start out with. The voice of the, the main character, who's an 11-year-old girl, simply sort of leapt onto the page, you know, like Venus on the half shell. She just was fully formed in my mind as a, as a, a narrator for the... And she, um, I'm talking as if, as if she's not me, which to my mind is, is kind of fascinating. But she, <clears throat> she had a humorous way of looking at things. I, I knew I wanted to make her a cryptozoologist, just simply because I've read way too much Charles Fort not to be interested in that sort of thing. And I knew I wanted her to have a contentious relationship with her cousins, her male cousins, and yet the three of them be sort of a team at the same, at the same time. I knew exactly who her uncle was, uh, John Tolliver Hedgepeth, John Tolliver being my grandfather's name. I wanted him to be kind of Pickwickian in a way. In an earlier book that I'd written set in, uh, in the same part of the world, a book called The Paper Grail, um, mm-hmm. the main character, one of the, one of the main characters in there is uh, a, a goofy older guy who might or might not be a part of a mysterious organization called the Guild of St. George. I wanted the uncle to be a shirt tail relative of that guy. Uh, only, you know, perhaps years later, whatever it might happen to be. Most of the characters, in other words, were quite clear in my mind when I began to write the book, despite the fact that I had not consciously thought through them beforehand. I mean, at some level, I must have been thinking about them, you know. So they were kind of uh, wrestling underneath your subconscious, just waiting to emerge fully formed. Yes, I think so. And, you know, maybe in some of the... I Actually, uh, I wrote a book called Land of Dreams back in the the 80s that was uh, um, published in other countries as a young adult novel. I mm-hmm. had not thought of it as young adult, even though um, Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes was very much on my mind in those days. And, you know, there, it certainly bears a resemblance to that book. It was my inspiration, you might say. This is the first time, though, that I, that I was thinking in terms of young perceptions and young characters and et cetera. Um, the characters had been hanging around in my mind, waiting to venture out, I guess. It, I took some revision before I got the book to the place that I wanted it. I think it's, I probably worked more page for page on that book than I have on most of my other books. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to figure out how much was enough and how much was too much and to keep the adventure moving despite Oh, I don't know, the fun I was having with the language of the book, you know. <laughs> um, I'm happy to, to hear that, uh, you know, that it moved from scene to scene. Well, it's really, it's very fun to read. It's a, for, for most of it, it's going to be like a one day, sit down in the afternoon and, and don't get up from it, read. And now, for me, the, the whole Fortean aspect was really absolutely great because you clearly know, know the man and know his work, and it's always seemed to me that his work is designed to be able to fit into this kind of... uh, Oh, boy. It's a treasure trove. Um, Some of the stuff in Fort is so bizarre that it's difficult to make it fit into a story, you know? (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, yeah, it was... uh, I, I just declared open season on Charles Fort, you know, well, I was happy to see that the Fiji mermaid plays a huge part in this. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, the book 
the book was conceived when I was teaching a, a class at uh, Orange County High School of the Arts, where I direct a creative writing program. At the time, I think we had about 80 kids in the program. Every other semester, I taught a, a class called um, The Origins and Sources of Fiction. Mm-hmm. And I promised the students we never study anything that they would study in any academic class, but rather we'd focus on the stuff that, that might become, I'm using the word stuff too often, that might become the stuff of their, of their stories. Mm-hmm. I don't think that... Uh, Dan Brown decided to use to write about the Knights Templar because he had studied it in a history class, you know. No. Um, so I did a I did chapters on secret societies and on uh, sea monsters and uh, ghosts and pirates and um, one week after another, I think I had sixteen three-hour lectures put together the first semester. And the, the class was a real blast. The students liked it because they didn't have to do any work. They just had to keep a notebook, and they could bring in weird stuff, you know, if they, I don't know, wanted to talk about vampires or whatever it might happen to be. Towards the end of, uh, I think the second time I taught that class, toward the end of it, I, I started thinking that uh, I might perhaps put my money where my mouth was and see if I could take some of the disparate elements of the the lectures I put together for that class and cram them into to a, a book, mm-hmm. you know. And um, the result, that was probably what kick-started Zuglodon more than anything else. And that was several years ago, actually. Well, one of the things that I thought that was interesting to me that in the recently, one of the more recent uh, Fortean phenomena is the this idea of, uh, and this happens more, these reports come off and come out of uh, the UK more often, are fake, bogus social workers uh. who will show up and knock on your door and say, I'm here to deal. And I thought Ms. Peckworthy is such an exemplary example of that, of, you know, somebody who looks official, sounds official, but just raises the hackles on your, on your radar and says, wow, what, what's up with that? Yeah, um, that's, how, that's why she appealed to me. And that's why, as the as the book went on, I wanted the kids to become confused about whether she was authentically a do-gooder or, in fact, was fundamentally the opposite, was working on the side of the villains, you know, to accomplish something. I like that that question arising. She was fun, though. She was one of my most uh, my favorite characters, without a doubt. Now, you do some great uh, scenes of action. And one thing I like is that, and this shows up in the, the steampunk books, too, uh, you tie, you name your chapters, and I love that that kind of sensibility. It it just it's fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's old fashioned again, but uh-huh. it's fun. Sure. And, and uh, we always know we're in for a good time when a chapter is titled that begins the battle of. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So talk about orchestrating these battles because they're visually they're very compelling. I was right there for every battle in this book. Excellent. And with Lord Grey Wayface. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who seemed right out of, now he seemed out of uh, Stevenson to me. Well, he, yes, he was. In fact, the uh, Lord uh, Wayface, the Creeper, uh, I, I think there, wasn't there a character named the Oxton Creeper in a Sherlock Holmes story? Oh, yes. I think yeah. I might have cribbed the Creeper thing from that. I had uh, originally referred to him as the as the gypsy, mm-hmm. but um, for reasons that are perfectly valid, that began to seem a little bit politically incorrect. And I thought, okay, I've got to I've got to come up with something that's uh, has a little bit more jazz to it, and you know, isn't just a uh, shooting from the hip. 
That's a that's perfect. I can totally see that character, and he's really creepy. Oh, good, <laughs> good. So, do you, when you map, do you block these action scenes out, no. and, and or draw them out, or anything? No, I do revise them quite a bit, though. Uh, I think I come back to the action scenes uh, more often than any other scene. It seems to me that that it takes a couple of weeks, sometimes uh, maybe a month, before I begin to see weaknesses in scenes, and mm. so I, I revise as I as I'm moving through the book. Some of the action scenes, I, well, especially the the long scene at the end where they're sort of returning to the surface, mm-hmm. um, that that was revised. I can't tell you how many times. You know. <laughs> um, it just reads like it reads super smooth. I can tell you. I just felt like that's a great journey too. Well, I mean, for thank us, you. it's really uh, for those of us who like speculative fiction and look for enjoy the kind of uh, combination of the surreal and the supernatural and the science fictiony elements of it. You do a good job of um, blending all those into one whole that where we don't, it's, we're not thinking, okay, how does this work science fictionally? What's the science fiction aspect of it? Right. Although we, there's a bit of that feel in this. Um, and we're not thinking, okay, what's the supernatural? How do these creators work? Do they have to drink blah, 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 blah? You don't think that. And you're not thinking, oh, this is just some surreal fantasia. It just kind of flows. Uh, you kind of um, reach escape velocity, I guess. Prose escape velocity. Oh, excellent. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, some of the scenes were a little bit difficult to write because they were, um, they were a little bit surreal, mm-hmm. especially when they're on their way to the center of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, I don't want to give anything away to the millions of readers who might, who might actually no, we don't. this, but, um, but there was, you know, there were some strange scenes. They didn't quite know where they were or mm-hmm. under what circumstances. And it, uh, the, the circumstances were affecting the way they perceived their own realities um, some of that was uh, generated from dreams that I'd had that stuck with me. Just you know, some of my favorite dreams. Um, Do you write down your dreams? Yeah, if they're any good. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Keep a pen by your bed. No, no. 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 Just, just, <laughs> just drag yourself over to the computer, and type right. them in. Um, so to get to get the right blend of uh, movement, I suppose, mm-hmm. and uh, the sort of mental thing that was going on in the characters. And the atmosphere that that uh, of the the scene that I was I was trying to paint, um, it was sometimes it was a sort of an acrobatics to make that to make all that work. But that was the fun of writing it, I think. Well, one of the things I think that makes this gives this really the strong steampunk feel mm-hmm. is that it has a global adventure. I mean, and it's literally a global adventure. Yeah. So talk about that because I think that's a really important part of that whole genre. I think so, too. I wanted to get out into the world like, well, I don't want to keep hauling Jules Verne into the conversation, but uh, I think when I grew up reading Jules Verne, I was as happy to read, you know, Michael Strogoff, Courier to the Tsar, as I was to read Mysterious Island. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted my characters to to find themselves in strange locales where... uh, where anything might happen and, you know, they, they, they could be surprised by it. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the Lake District in England also. And in fact, the the St. George Lodge um, is a very thinly veiled uh, lodge that belongs to some friends of ours. It's actually called the St. John Lodge, and it's right there in Bowness, right on on the lake. And just as the characters 
are named the Watts Berries in the book. Uh, his name is Barry Watts. So I hope he's <laughs> hope he's happy with this when he sees the copy. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think that also I really like about this particular book is that it has your for a young adult novel. There's a lot of uh, moral choices the characters make, and that's that's really important. And you you play that nicely, and it, it kind of also locks in with the uh, an underlying theme I think of throughout your work of this kind of sweetness. You no matter what happens to your characters, and it's sometimes often rather dire. Um, you really like everybody, and you like the world you write about. And I think that that kind of uh, out out of that, which we as adults are going to pick up on, and adult readers will say this is a kind of nice theme, bubbles up some of the stuff that the kids will pick up on, which is you know the moral choices that the the kids make in terms of you know with cameras. And I don't want to say too much about it, but so talk about those kind of uh, balancing those two uh, themes. Yeah, I suppose that the if there if the book involves moral choices, which it does, I, I guess without a doubt. Um, those again grew out of the, um, the characters who the, who I thought the characters were. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that one of the characters would be most likely to, uh, I don't know, steal a purse, put a item in his pocket, whatever it might happen to be, and then deny it. <laughs> My uh, main character would have, I think, a different. She she would despise that, but she might make fun of him under certain circumstances or I want to make them seem authentic Mm -hmm. and I think authentic people who are essentially okay people um, do foolish things and regret those things afterwards and I know I did when I was a kid so that sort of became built into the characters who I thought the characters were also I I, I'm not um, very often we read that that steampunk uh, is essentially dystopian. Um, but mine is not necessarily essentially dystopian. Um, I think dystopian young adult fiction is very popular these days. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, really in vogue. And the students that I have at the High School of the Arts love it. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely love it. But I think it, when I write, I fall in love with the, uh, the place, the setting, the atmosphere of the story a little bit too much to to make it seem negative, dark, dystopian, whatever it might happen to be. Especially when I'm writing something that's that's a little bit light and is, is supposed to be fun. Now this has a slightly different setting than your other novels. This is northern north Northern California. Yeah, is... this is my the first thing I've I've said in Northern California for many years. Um, Paper Grail was Northern California and and um, Land of Dreams. Um, I wrote a short story called Paper Dragons that won a World Fantasy Award back in the 80s that was set in that same area. Mm-hmm. We lived up in uh, Humboldt County for a while, my wife and I, mm-hmm. and I was really affected by it, really loved the weird beauty of the place, you know. And um, also, we we traveled up to Mendocino and Fort Bragg a lot. We've got friends in Fort Bragg. And um, it just seemed to me that, that setting this there was, was right. And I, it could be that if I write more of these, it could be that one of them is set entirely on the Northern California coast. There's plenty of groovy stuff going on up there to, you know, to fill a book. But it's equally likely that the next one is, if there's another one, uh, that it takes place in the Sargasso Sea or someplace like that, you know. 
Well, I, I hope there'll be a, a sequel to this because it definitely begs one. Well, frankly, yes. And in fact, um, there's plot threads that mm-hmm. require one. Oh, yes. Um, I'm hoping that, that, that we'll see. Yeah. Have you, are you, how close are you to starting that? I actually have a chunk of it done. Oh, good. And I've got <laughs> several in my mind um, that, uh, um, that might follow it up. Oh. As long as I've got publishers who are interested in publishing them, you know. Um, ideally, if this sells a few copies, uh, that'll happen. Now, you're working, you've uh, completed uh, a new major Langdon Saint, Saint, Saint Ives novel. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. talk about that, because um, here you are, the guy who's invented this genre, which is now, uh, to a certain degree, regrettably, <laughs> a, a fashion industry yeah it's it's, w- it's a wall. cottage industry yeah i mean there are more conventions that are themed around this and fashion shows and clubs and whole lines of clothing and and you're coming back to it and i think it sounds like i hope that you're you'll be keeping your characteristic uh, approach which is i think uh, fundamentally different from the way a lot of what purports to be uh, steampunk now is written. Yes, it is fundamentally different. Um, I've read a certain amount of steampunk recently. I, I'm a judge for the World Fantasy Award. And um, um, I will, without a doubt, keep writing the same sort of thing that I've always written. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you could help it. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. And I, it, I think there are writers out there who can, who can um, oh, I don't know, write this that or the other thing if it um but i can't mm. uh, basically i'm uh i can only write one thing at a time and once it's um and it becomes exactly my own almost immediately i'd be terrible if i tried to write a star trek novel or something like that mm. um I, it would i'd be ruined uh if i tried to do that the the new steampunk book which will be published in January by Titan Books is uh, titled The Aylesford Skull and um, basically Langdon St. Ives has moved to uh, Aylesford which is in Kent and um, there's a grave robbery there's uh, nefarious doings of all sorts of things there's kidnappings there's murders there's you know um, and it he's sort of tumbles into an adventure that actually is the longest book I've ever written, probably by close to 80 pages or so. Oh, good. Um, yeah, it was good. <laughs> I'm looking Although, forward to it because yeah, your books are more is better. Oh, good, good, good. I think it's um, I think it's certainly my best steampunk oh. yet, without a doubt. Can writers say that about their own work? I don't know. Maybe they're, they shouldn't try, but, uh, but I believe it is. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about uh, murders and stuff, and one thing I think, and you'd mentioned this a little bit, one thing I think that's really true about your work uh, in general, and it's not obvious, is that it t- partakes heavily of the mystery genre. Mm. And I think that it's it's all undercurrents and, and to a degree, but it's it's very much there in terms of kind of, I think, to a degree, some of your plotting and the way your characters I think react to what's happening, how they have to figure it out and deal with it. Right. Yes, I think that's true. I, I've read lots of crime novels for quite a few years. Who do you read now? 
Um, if anybody. I'm a big James Lee Burke fan, but mm. I've eradicated all of James Lee Burke. There's no more left to read. Tony Hillerman, mm. uh, he's got such a great sense of place. Well, talk about how you use the kind of, when you're writing, do you think of your stuff in terms of, of mysteries? Here's this problem and solution. There's a mystery. We've got to investigate it. To a degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Almost without fail, <laughs> it turns out, yeah. And uh, the Aylesford skull is probably the most uh, um, complex of those sorts of plots that mm -hmm. I've put together so far. The most uh, took me quite a, a while to write it simply because finessing all that stuff was difficult mm -hmm. due to the complexities. There are uh, a number of principal characters. I'm not sure which of them I like the best. I finally got to a point where I had to start closing the door on characters who wanted to you know, play a bigger role in the story just because I, it was going to spin out of control. You know? <laughs> you know, it strikes me that these Langdon St. Ives books might be described as Fortean Victorian mysteries. Well, and yeah. He's a Fortean Victorian detective. Um, yes, he is in, in many ways. Uh, my last subterranean press uh, steampunk novella, The Affair of the Chalk Cliffs, was actually suggested by a thing that Phil Dick told Tim Powers and I one night, mm -hmm. very late at night. He um, he had a very uh, complex sense of humor, and he really enjoyed scaring the hell out of people by um, uh, telling them a story of some depredation, let's say, um, perpetrated by the KGB. That had led to multiple murders, and the following people were involved. And as he would tell the story, it would get closer and closer to, to him personally, and to the location in his house where we have to be sitting that very night. And it would be one in the morning, and you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, one night he convinced us that the the KGB had um, developed a madness ray. And that uh, we were, you know, worried about um, missiles. But in fact, the problem was that they had a madness ray that was impervious to the horizon. And it was, it was pointed right now at Los Angeles. And that on any given morning, we might wake up completely out of our minds. And I, I just thought, oh my God, heaven help us, you know. And then the next day, inevitably one of us would call Phil and he'd start laughing and say, you guys, you'll believe anything, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds uh, a little bit goofy at the time. But no, it's I kept... scary. It is scary. It's yeah. fundamentally terrorizing. Yeah. Oh, well, especially when you can tell it as well as he can, you know. Mm -hmm. But I put that madness ray in my pocket and thought, I'm one of these days I'm going to use that. And I thought, well, you know, when I, when I wrote The Affair of the Chalk Cliffs, I thought, how appropriate to steampunk, you know, rays. What so, more can you ask for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I put the madness ray in that one. Some of the, the steampunk stories, especially the two subterranean press novellas, have, I think, um, whereas they've, they're, I think, action-oriented and there's a certain amount of danger in them and uh, I think a fairly serious tone, there's also an underlying sense of humor because they're narrated by um, one of my characters who's a little bit on the goofy side, who's been narrating these things for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I realized at one point that that when I wrote Homunculus, it wasn't it. There was a third person uh, narrator who was sort of faceless, just a storyteller. And um, then it further occurred to me that it was 
partly because that that third person narrator tended to narrate the stories that um, perhaps wouldn't hold up if they had a uh, much of an underlying sense of humor, mm-hmm. um, enough humor to to make the to make them fun, I suppose, but not that P.G. Woodhouseian goofy humor. Mm-hmm. So the Aylesford Skull, which tends to be, I think, moderately, literally, literally deadly serious, mm-hmm. um, could not be narrated by by the the narrator of the affair of the chalk cliffs. That had to be narrated by somebody who could um, keep things pretty straight. Mm-hmm. Not that there aren't some, I think, pretty funny things in it. I hope I'm right about that. But um, peripheral, I suppose. Yeah. The we, piece that I'm working on right now, again, is, is narrated by Jack Owlsby, my, my sort of goofy, uh, naive narrator. Well, his uh, that's one of the things that makes those books fun is that kind of that voice um so and this brings up the the larger theme within all your work you do have a very interesting sense of humor it's not out front although there's a, there's some there's some great lines in Zooglodon where I, I think somebody describes uh Ms. Peckworthy as she could sell herself as a diet <laughs> I was yeah, I was kind of fond of that line actually. <laughs> I totally love that, and I think that you you this uh, boils out throughout your stuff, and it gives it a re. It's a kind of a uniter uh, of the thing, and it make and it it also enables us as readers to buy into the fantastic, and it also f- feeds the sense of locale and atmosphere. And I'm wondering if you, as a writer, how aware of you. Are of your own sense of humor? Do you have to like ratchet it back, or do you just kind of let it ride out? I let it ride out in uh, boy in a book like The Last Coin, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, my character was really quite moderately eccentric, mm-hmm. and had um, I think uh, um, despite the fact that it was written in a third person point of view, it was so the the language of the book was so close to the language of his thinking. Mm-hmm that it was pretty packed with stuff that struck me as being funny at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also in certain ways a little bit like me, so I could just let myself go. Mm. Um, but I can't always let myself go in, in, in that regard. Sometimes I have to ratchet it back, you know? I also um, f- fundamentally have to ask myself um, whether the thing that's making me laugh at the moment is uh, actually f- going to be funny to my reader, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Somehow, sometimes I'll think that something is just monumentally clever, uh-huh. and I'll realize that I've actually it's taken me a, a paragraph to uh, to make the monumentally clever stuff work, and maybe the reader doesn't want to hang fire for a paragraph while you know while I uh, unload a a joke on him, you know. Well, I'd say your your prose seems is really nice. I mean, it, again, you have a sense of the vernacular, in 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 all of these works that that uh, makes them seem grounded and, mm. and uh, makes the elements of the fantastic seem more real. Now, uh, you talked about uh, the the last coin and the paper grail and all the bells of earth. These also are kind of seen as a as a kind of trilogy. Were they conceived that way? Um, no, they were not. Um, 
The last coin is the first of them, and it was by, and large, my favorite of my books at the time that I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Very caught up in the main character. It is. It has a. It's goofy. A, I totally love it. I remember reading that. Oh. I had so much fun with that guy. Well, he's bears a passing resemblance to a character from *The Digging Leviathan*. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a, a connection there also. But when I got done with that, um, it was difficult for me to start a new book because I kept falling back into that mindset, you mm-hmm. know. And um, it seemed like uh, a book like, for example, Night Relics, which was a much more serious, much darker ghost story. Um, I, I had to I had to jump that far away mm-hmm. um, just to, to sort of break things off a little bit. And then I went back around and um, fairly soon after that, when did I write the Paper Grail? I guess I wrote the Paper Grail in between those two. And then I came back around to All the Bells on Earth, which has, a, uh, I think, a, a family resemblance to The Last Coin again. Mm-hmm. But when I was done with that, I absolutely could not get out of his mindset. <laughs> and uh, so I decided to take a big step away again. I think I wrote Winter Tides after that, which, mm-hmm. again, was kind of a serious, scary ghost story in which people might actually hurt themselves, you know. Now, uh, one of the things that I like about you, too, is you've done some collaborations, um, uh, both with Tim Powers and J.K. Potter. And and I'd like you to talk about those. They're distinctly very different kind of collaborations. I knew who J.K. Potter was because I'd seen his illustrations. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I'm a pretty good friend of uh, Ellen Datlow, and um, he'd done some really interesting illustrations of, of her face morphing into a cat's face that... I saw around, and um, but I didn't know him at all. Never met him. In fact, I haven't met him even today. Oh, really? Um, then for a period of time, after Lord Kelvin's Machine, I didn't write any steampunk at all. Then all of a sudden, it occurred to me that I very much wanted to. So I, I began to write the, the pieces for Subterranean Press, and Bill Schaefer at Subterranean Press simply went straight to J.K. Potter and said, here's more. Get those old photos out, because you know, and then I, you know, I saw the photos that he did for the the those two, and also for uh, the Adventures of Langman St. Ives, which is another really pretty book, and it just seems to me that he was he's custom built to, you know, to illustrate these things. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I don't suppose that the Aylesford skull will come out with any illustrations, so probably we won't see his hand in that. But if I continue to write the novellas for Subterranean Press, I'm I'm looking forward to his, you know. Well, hopefully Subterranean Sorry. Press will do one of their gorgeous limited editions. I think that would be a very nice idea. Oh. I, I promote that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll both email uh, yeah. Bill and tell him to get to it. I know. he's uh, they, He puts out such nice books. And also the, the sorts of books that you can imagine will still be nice books 50 years from now. If, yeah. You know, if yep. somebody doesn't run them over in a, you know, with a tractor or something like that. Um, because heaven knows that... That, that sort of quality binding doesn't is a little bit scarce in commercial publishing. Now, talk about your work with Tim Powers. You've done a few kind of little things with him that are just really fun. And, and this kind of, you know, you guys both came from the the, the scene with, with uh, Philip K. Dick and K.W. Jeter, and I think who uh, Dean Coons would drop into those things. Um, talk about kind of maybe that, that's a, to me, that's as iconic a grouping in some ways as, you know, the, the, the gang up in the 
Lord, Lord Byron and Mary Shelley. Well, <clears throat> at the at the time, of course, it, it, none of us knew besides Phil, who had you know already had a big career, but none of KW and Tim and I had no idea what would happen with our our writing. Um, I guess it's a little like childhood, you know. By the time you figure out that it was pretty wonderful and you wish it would have gone on a little bit longer, it's already too late, you know, because it's done. Um, and that that certainly was the truth there. Tim and I met at the university when, oh, man, I guess I was 20, and he would have been 19, 21, because I, I had had just gotten married, actually, so I was 21. And um, we started hanging out quite a bit and uh, had the same circle of friends and, and spent uh, heaps and heaps of time together. Tim was very much an encouragement to me um, when it came to mailing my stuff out, unsaleable stuff at the time, but writers aren't supposed to care about that. You just keep mailing it to Playboy and hope they send you a check for five or $10,000, you know, which they do not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was the way, it, you know, that it went. Tim was already, you know, he'd published some poetry in Omra magazine and mm-hmm. I think a couple of illustrations. And he wasn't very far away from writing uh, The Sky's Discrowned, you mm-hmm. know, his first novel. Mm-hmm. Both of us were writing these uh, interminable uh, novels. Mine later on became the Digging Leviathan, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't turn into the Digging Leviathan for God knows I don't know years. You know when I finally figured out what to do to it uh-huh. to make it work as a as a novel. We became uh, exceedingly close friends, hung out together uh, a lot. Vicky and I, my wife and I, moved up to uh, Humboldt County, and Tim came up there to visit. We drove down here. Um, in fact, that's how we came to know that we probably should have stayed home when we'd jump in the Volkswagen and drive 12 hours in order to hang out with our friends down here. You know? <laughs> it seemed uh, to me that Tim was pretty much the only person I could really collaborate with literarily. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think our work is similar in, in many ways. But we have a certain um, similar literary sensibility, and we certainly have a a lot of background reading in common, Mm -hmm. both taking the same classes at the university and knowing the same people. You both get the suburbs equally right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim's uh, sometimes is a little more down and out Mm -hmm. and desperate Mm -hmm. uh, than mine is, but yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it's one of the reasons I love reading Tim's stuff. Uh I know exactly where things are set. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) uh, last call, you know, I, mm. I think I knew every flower bed and uh, automobile, you know, that was mm-hmm. in that. In fact, there's a um, strange character in Last Call, a gigantic uh, guy with a skeleton tattooed to him who drives an old uh, Jaguar automobile across the desert. And that actually was my car or my wife's car, that Jaguar. Anyway, no we, skeleton tattoo, though, uh, on you? No, 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 no skeleton <laughs> tattoo. Um, I um, think that we simply s- had um, very, very similar ways of seeing things, mm-hmm. which made it perfect for collaboration. Also, I think uh, I so thoroughly trust him as a writer, his eye and his ear, mm-hmm. that I have no problem um, writing several paragraphs and uh, emailing it to him at the time we were writing on paper, but... Um, emailing it to him, and uh, if he wants to dust off my three or four paragraphs and make uh, changes, I'm happy with that mm-hmm. because I, I have a, a regard for his skills. Um, and I believe that 
the opposite is true. And um, the collaborations were really effortless. Every once in a while, perhaps something would come up and he'd say, I don't think that's going to fly because farther down the line, this has got to happen. And, mm-hmm. and I think, well, of course, cut it out, you know, and out it would go. Effortless collaboration. I can't think of anybody else I could, I could do that with. The, the only problem with collaborating uh, that I discovered is that it takes as much time for two people to write a short story as for one person to write a short story. <laughs> and, um, you know, just because it goes back and forth and back and forth and you end up going out to eat pizza and, you know, discussing it and all this other kind of business. Consequently, it hasn't occurred as often as I kind of like for it to occur. Mm-hmm. We've got 18 pages of a story that's on my desktop there on my computer that uh, is actually going to be pretty good if we ever get around to finishing it, you know. But um, just when I, when we got started on that one, he realized that he actually had to finish that book right there. Hide me. Among, among the, the graves. graves. Yeah. Um, he'd been re- working on it for three years and he thought either I give this to my editor or she's going to fly out to the west coast and murder me you know so our collaborative stories sort of disappeared in the background but maybe it'll appear again sometime i've been speaking with james p blaylock his latest novel from subterranean press is zuglodon forthcoming is the islesford skull we have lots to look forward to more subterranean press novellas and more zuglodon novellas thank you for joining me james thank you very much it's been fun You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.